This great text, this beautiful story you gave us, which is rich with meaning. Lord, let it run into our hearts and fill us with joy and thankfulness as necessary or conviction as is needed. We ask, dear God, that your word would come alive to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here it is. I'm I'm going to try this morning as much as possible to stay out of the way of the story. I'll help you understand, I hope, some of the cultural context of it and, and to get to the main point of what Jesus is saying. But I'll try and just let Jesus do the storytelling here. We have seen in this chapter of of Luke, as we began looking last week, that there are three stories Jesus tells here in this chapter. All three stories have one great purpose. They have one point. All three of them, as often happens, Jesus tells these three stories. The, The theme, the purpose on all of them is the same. But with each one, he gives us a different detail or a different focus to look at, to understand that story. We looked at the first two, the shorter two, last week, and we thought about this. And and to put it in context, so you know that how all three of them are linking together, we have here in in the story, in these three stories, the, the shepherd of the first story, the woman of the second story, and the father of the third story are all representative to us of God in Christ Jesus. So as Christ came to earth representing God, seeking and saving sinners, that is what he came for. In the first story, the sheep that is lost represents to us the sinner. The sheep is the sinner, and he wanders far away. And so we describe this as those as the, the far away sinners, those who are clearly recognizable as those that are away from God. In the second story, a woman loses a coin. The coin is lost in the house. It is very close to her. It is still within the house, but it is still lost. Here, while it still speaks of sinners, it speaks of those who see themselves as righteous, those who are in the vicinity that look perhaps like they are close to God, but they are still lost. As we come to this third story, the the parable, keeping with the way it all works together, we see the same thing. The younger brother and the older brother are both sinners. But the younger brother who runs far away reminds us of the sheep who went far away. Very clearly a sinner, the, the, the degradation of society. The older brother stays, much like the coin, in the house, but in the end we find is still lost. So it comes to seeing how God deals with all of these and his attitude towards all these things. The great theme of all three of these stories is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that in saving the lost, he finds great joy. This is what Jesus is trying to tell along the way. The reason these stories start is also very important. We mentioned this as we began last week, but it's also very important as we come to this third story. The beginning of chapter 15 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Okay, so here we have what in the story is the, the sheep who's far away or the younger son. These, the despised aside, they're coming in to hear Jesus and Jesus is gladly telling them the good news of the gospel. In verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
These two verses are very important because they tell us the reason for the story. Jesus is telling these stories because the Pharisees are standing there watching people come to Jesus and hear the gospel and they are upset. They're the ones who are supposed to be, or at least believe themselves to be, acceptable to God and righteous. And they're getting angry that God is rejoicing over sinners being saved. So that is the key here to help us understand what this parable, particularly this prodigal son parable, is all about. The story is really not about the younger son. The story is about the older son. That's what this parable is about. The son, the younger son and the father, who we meet first, are all there to set us up and to prepare us so that we can see the older son in the real context. So his heart can be genuinely revealed. So although we call it the prodigal son usually and focus on him because he takes up most of the story and he's first, he's not really the one the story's about. He's leading us to see the older son in the right uh, context. So we're going to follow Jesus' pattern as we move through here and, and look in the same pattern, looking at the, the younger son, the father, and the older son as we go through and seeing each character as they appear, remembering also that as we read through this story, this story is about us. It is about sinners who have been away from God. So let's start at the beginning. When we look firstly at the youngest son, oh, I missed it. The youngest son, who is the, the self-indulgent sinner. The self-indulgent sinner. In verse 11, as the story begins, Jesus introduces us to this man and his sons. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of good that falls to me. So he divided them to, him, to them his livelihood. As we look at this young man, we're going to see his attitudes and we're going to find our way through and see how the father responds and then the older brother. The first thing that we see as we come to this young man, as we look at it in our context, is when we find a self-indulgent sinner, one who is looking for their own good, they are discontent with God's goodness. Here in the story, the young son is discontent with his father's goodness. Here he is, a young man who desires freedom. He is desiring his own freedom. He wanted to live his own life, be his own person, be away from the, the restrictions and the responsibilities and the restraints of his father and his father's house and do his own thing, have his own life, be his own man. The father had lovingly provided everything his sons needed. He was a very wealthy man, we can tell from the story. And in working all this and having this wealth, he has provided well for his sons, given them great opportunity and great goodness. This son, this younger son who demands what he wants, has lived in the goodness of his father. This has always been our temptation. Rather than live for God, we have chosen and we choose to live for ourselves. Back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, speaking of eating of the tree that God had said they should not eat of. For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So 
when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Rather than live for God, we choose to want to be God. To live for ourselves. We desire our own freedom and have always since the beginning. In desiring our own freedom, and as we see in this young man, as he desires his freedom, what that leads to is a demanding of his rights. He wants what he believes he has a right to. Now, traditionally, in the the context here of how it would, would work, traditionally, when it came to the inheritance, the oldest son would get a double portion of all the other sons. So in this instance, the oldest son would get two-thirds of what the father had to leave behind. The younger son would get one-third of that. Now, there was a reason for that. It was a uh, a way in which God had had designed it and set it up so that the good nature and the, the, the family business and the family could continue. If it kept getting divided into smaller and smaller and smaller portions all the time, the family would disintegrate. But here, by giving the largest part to the oldest son, the majority of the family work stays in the family, which gives the family longevity and support. And so this is how it happened. Now, the youngest son, he's going to get his last, his third portion when the father dies. Of course, this was typically distributed at the father's death. But here... The younger son wants it all now. He demands what he believes he is right. He has no concern about, uh, about the good of the family. There's no concern about why it is the way it is and why it should be distributed the way it should be. He is only concerned about his pleasure. This is what will be mine. It is mine. I want it now. I want to be able to use it Now, his focus on life was entirely wrong. See, he saw his inheritance as a right, not as a gift from his loving father. And as he looked on this, he said, this is what I deserve. This is what my right is to have. I want it now. As we come to these verses and look in it, it says at the end of verse 12, so he, the father, divided to them his livelihood And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The father releases the son. The son makes his demands. And the father does indeed give him what he is. It is not done willingly. It is not done joyfully. He is not glad to get rid of this troublesome son finally from his house. This is done with with sorrow and great sadness. And as we look and we see how he deals with his older son later, it probably did not happen without a great deal of pleading from the father to the younger son, given the way he interacts with his other son. But the son doesn't want to stay. The father releases him to live his own way and find the consequences, much like God has done in our lives. Therefore, says in Romans chapter 1, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. Psalm 106 and verse 15 gives us a similar idea. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. 
That is, we may have all that we want, but no satisfaction. And here is the son. The father gives the son all that he wants, but the son will find no satisfaction, no joy of soul. We find with the son that he is discontent with God's goodness, but we find also the lesson we learn here is that we are disrespectful to God. The young son dishonors his father as we dishonor God. The request which he makes to his father is obviously selfish, clearly very selfish. He has no thought for his forefather's work. The inheritance that he is set to attain comes not just from his father, but what his father gained from his father, and so on and so on. The family grew, and as they amassed their their wealth, and as they passed it on from generation to generation, here the son has no concern about what it has cost the family for this, about what it has meant. There is no consideration for how he was able to receive such a gift. We live surrounded by God's goodness constantly. Very few, like none naturally, attribute that goodness to God. Not thankful for it. In fact, by nature, and we see it all around us, the goodness of God we ascribe to someone or something else. We live our lives in this world separated from God attributing everything to someone or something else. No thought for what this would cost his father either. What was this demand? What was this going to cost his father for him to take what he had now, both materially and emotionally? Verse 14 says, uh, but when he, or sorry, verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions, with prodigal living. This indicates a very quick turnaround. So he's demanded from his father. The father has consented and given him what he needs. And very quickly, the son has taken whatever the father could gather to him that was his. So it would probably be in various sorts of things, not likely coins and money. The son has taken what he's been given and he has turned it into money that he could take with him. Now to do it that quickly, he has clearly not got what it was worth. All he has been worried about is to get out of the house. So he has taken things which have great value and sold them for less than what they are worth just so he can get away from his father. He shows a great disdain. As we show a disdain for God, his attitude towards his father is his horrendous. He makes demands and he addresses his father with great disrespect It's not just how he asks that shows his attitude, but it's the very asking. See, to go to his father, to say to his father while he is alive, give me my inheritance, something which is usually done at the death of the father. He is essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine and I will get out of your life. His absolute disdain for his father. He does not care a bit about his father here. He wants only what he wants so he can do what he wants and get out of his father's life and leave all together. Indeed, this is how the father felt. But when the son returns and they're rejoicing, the father says, this is my son who was dead. That relationship there was was over at this point. The son had chosen to flee. 
Remember, of course, that these stories are designed to illustrate reality. In our natural state as sinners, we are discontent with God's goodness and entirely disrespectful to him. We live as if he were dead. This all brings us to the point where not only are we discontent with God's goodness, disrespectful to God, but this leads us to be distant to God. Verse 13 says, In many days the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. He ran as far as possible. In the context, as Jesus told this story to those that were listening there to the the Pharisees, the Pharisees understood what Jesus meant by far country. What it meant is this son had left and he had run out of Israel. So he'd gone out to the Gentiles. He hadn't just left the city and gone somewhere else in Israel to another town or another place where he could start again. He wanted to get as far away from everything that represented his father as possible. He was not just going to leave the city. He was going to leave everything. Who he was, any identification of, of his father and who he, where he had come from, he wanted nothing to do. So he leaves his whole place entirely and goes as far away as possible. He does not want to be identified with the father at all. We want nothing to do with God when we're born into this world and our sin. And our sin has separated us from God. We are distant from him. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were saved when we were far off. We have run far away from God. And having run far away to this far country, it says, and there wasted his possessions. The King James and, and mine, the New King James, here is, are the only translations that still use prodigal. Prodigal is a word which means reckless. It means wasteful. That's what it means. So when it talks about prodigal living, it means he has been living recklessly and wastefully. And this is how he has lived. He has run off. And when he thought, when he was at home, that he was in bondage, now he is genuinely in bondage. He has wasted everything. All that he had got is now gone. The good he had in his life is gone. The potential he had in his life is now gone. The joy is all gone. The resources, all gone. Everything is gone. He is now at the very lowest part. And just when he thought it couldn't get worse, it does get worse. He is at the very bottom of life. All that resources he took with him lasted but for a little while and then it left him empty. The point Jesus is making, I think, is fairly clear there. But then the story starts to turn. And here we see the young man come back. We are drawn to God. See, the story is designed by Jesus so that by this stage, as the Pharisees are listening to this and listen to the description of this son, who has basically said to his father, I wish you were dead, give me what I want. He's run off to be with the Gentiles and then spent his life, wasted it all there with everything which is opposed to what godliness should be, finds himself now living with pigs. Everything about this story to this point is to get us to look at this son and find him utterly unlikable. 
We are supposed to see this young man as the epitome of evil. Everything that is against God. We should look at this young man with disgust and disdain. That's why Jesus has brought us to this point. However, when the young son is in this state, we see in the text here, verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He recognizes his state. He sees that he is the epitome of ruin, that everything is gone. He realizes that the father was much better than he ever deserved. It's clear from his thoughts as he lays them out, it's not just about getting the good things back. So he's not just going, I've got nothing and I can have stuff with with dad. It's not just about getting the good stuff back. We can see in his thoughts as he sits there that he is genuinely concerned of his state. He recognizes his folly and desperately wants to make amends with his father. We call this, in Bible terms, repentance. It is here we see his change of mind, his change of heart, his change of direction. In our repentance, we recognize that we are the wasteful son, that God is the good father. And instead of persisting in our wasteful living, we acknowledge God is right. We turn from pursuing our own way and we follow him. I want you to note something as well with this son's thought to returning to his father. He says, I need to go to my father and I need to repent and I need to make it right. But his idea of making it right is to earn it, isn't it? I will go to my father and I will tell him I'm not worthy to be your son, so make me a servant that has put me in a place where I can earn back everything I've lost. Put me in a place where I can earn back your love, where I can earn back your respect. He has a plan to repay the debt of what he has done. Now, how does the father respond? From the self-indulgent sinner, we turn to see a gracious and forgiving father. And we see a number of things about forgiveness here. As we look at the father. The first we see in verse 20, 21, he says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he still was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The first thing we see about the father's forgiveness, about God's forgiveness, is that it is eager forgiveness. The father has been waiting to forgive. Probably from the day the son left, he has been watching for his return. See, the father saw him a far way off. He has been waiting and watching. The sadness and the disappointment that the father felt when the son left did not turn into bitterness and anger. But rather was found in love and compassion. So when he saw his son a far way off, his heart was ready to forgive 
This is the point Jesus is making, which would have stirred the Pharisees greatly, is is that God is eager to forgive sinners. It brings him great joy. As the other parables show, God is searching and calling for his people to come home. See, this boy represents the most reprehensible sinner possible. That's what he's supposed to represent. So in this picture, you may not see that, but I want you to think of the most, the most heinous, most horrible person you can think of. Say, that person is beyond redemption. That is this son. That is who Jesus is describing, the most heinous, awful, sinful person you can possibly think about. And this person comes home, and the father is eager to forgive him. Waiting to forgive. Don't imagine that you are beyond his desire to forgive. He sang a song a moment ago. Your sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This is the picture of the young son and the father. His sins are many. The father's mercy is more. He forgives because he loves. That's why he is eager to forgive. He is compassionate. He loves his son. And so the father does something which to the Pharisees, they consider this unthinkable. I mean, it's unthinkable, one, that the son would return expecting anything. But here, when the father sees him, Jesus describes the father not as standing there waiting for the son to approach him, but he sees the son and the father does something which is dishonorable for a man of his state. He runs out to him. And he hugs him and he kisses him. And the Pharisees are thinking, what kind of nobleman does that? We don't do that. But this father runs to his son because he loves his son. And he is eager to forgive him. The love of the father for the son is immense. And not only is God eager to forgive, but his forgiveness is also complete. You remember that when the son came on his way home, he had his speech ready. He'd probably been practicing it all the way home. Thinking, how am I going to say this? How am I going to get it right so I can say it right and, and do it? He had a plan. He would come home, he would repent for what he had done, and he would work to repay the debt. That was his plan. But you'll notice when he gets home, the father doesn't let him finish his speech. He only gets partway through it, and the father is already planning a party is already planning the celebration. The father's forgiveness is immediate. There is no, now look, son, you need to just wait here and let's, let's see how things go for a couple of weeks and see if it's going to work out and you're not going to run off again. The forgiveness of the father, immediate. As soon as that son returns home, he is forgiven. And you know why the forgiveness is immediate at that moment? Because in the father's heart, He'd already forgiven the son. This is just the moment we see it happen. The father has already forgiven him. He's just waiting for the son to return. The debt the son owed was enormous. There was no way he could repay that debt in any possible way. And the father does not ask him to repay that debt. The same is true with us and God. 
The debt we owe God in our sin is enormous. There is no possible way that we can repay God the debt that we owe him in our sin. And God never asks us to. You don't need to earn your forgiveness. When you come to him, he forgives. This complete forgiveness is free, but it is also full. His forgiveness is absolutely overwhelming. Now, as we look in these these verses and and we see what the father does for him, uh, it says in verse 22, But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, I don't want to get into the significance of each of the gifts that he gives him this morning uh, in those, but just to say this, what they mean as a whole. Here's what these gifts mean. These gifts which he gives to his son, The robe, the ring, the shoes are identifying him as a son, not a servant. These are all things which in one way or another identify this young man as a son, not a servant. The father was pleased to have the son be identified with him. Despite what anybody else in the community or anybody else thinks, the father would look at the son and say, he is my son. They signified a full restoration to position as a son. Now that, that as I was reading through this and contemplating this, this, the number of times this almost brought me to tears as I thought about this. At this moment, this son comes back who has squandered everything his father has given him. He comes back and the father gives him everything which says, you're my son. And as he does that, he restores him to the full position of a son. In these gestures, the father says to the son, I've forgotten everything that happened. What? You were away? You're my son. You're here. It's as if nothing ever happened. He is restored completely to the place of a son and everything that means for a father and a son. In this moment, the father erased all that happened before. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified, we often describe like this. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's the picture here. Completely restored. It's as if nothing ever happened before this. Everything is as it should be. We find here also from the Father, not only is there eager forgiveness, complete forgiveness, but there is extravagant forgiveness. There is a great celebration here. The father, with haste, makes a great party, and he kills the fatted calf. Now, the way it worked with the, the fatted calf is it was usually it was young, it was it kept aside, it was fed extra so it would be good, and was usually set aside for a specific purpose because they only lasted for a short while. It was meant to be killed young and eaten at its best. Right, So that the father had a fatted calf there suggests that there was something else he was preparing for. There was another uh, banquet he was readying for that this was assigned to. 
But nothing that this father had planned, nothing that this father had prepared for, came even close to keeping that fatted cow from using it for the return of his son. No event surpassed the return, and there is joy, and there is life. The son was dead, but is alive again, much like when we find Jesus Christ as Savior. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we've taken most of our time this morning to look at the younger son and the older son, but I've told you the story is about the older son, not the younger son. So why have we spent most of our time this morning talking about that? Because the point of the story is, by the time we've set the scene with the younger son and the father, when we come to look at the older son, everything clicks and we see the context and we see immediately who this man is. And so we look lastly here at the self-righteous sinner. In verse 25, it tells us now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Here we find, just like the younger son before, the older son is distant from his father. So the older son is in no different a place than he, was. he is unaware of the father's joy. Does it seem odd to you that the father is filled with joy because the son has come home and he has started a party and he has called all of the servants to get a party ready and it's ready and it's going and there's celebration, but the son doesn't know. The older son is still in the field. No servant has gone to the older son and said, come to the party. The father has not gone out to the son and, 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 or sent anybody to the son and say, come in to the party. The older son hasn't been looking around or thinking, what is, he stumbles across the party. Why? Why would that be? Because the older son has no better relationship with his father than the younger son had. The older son stayed home, but he was in no better estate than the younger son was. Like the coin in the previous parable, it doesn't matter how close you are. If you're lost, you're lost. He was unaware of the father's joy and he was unconcerned with the father's joy. His reaction to what happens here and what is going on tells us a great deal too. His heart is not for his father and his heart is not for his brother. He does not care. In fact, he becomes angry. Angry at what goes on. See, so now for the Pharisees, the story has taken a very ugly turn. Because now Jesus is not condemning the sinners. Jesus is saying, you people who think you are righteous, who think you're doing all the right thing, and you, you look like you're close to God, you're actually no closer to God than they are even though you do all the right things. He is distant from God. We find also that this older son is disrespectful. He's filled with anger. Oh, as it says of his, his uh, 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 focus in verse 28, but he was angry 
and would not go in. It's filled with anger. The way he speaks when he says, Lo, these many years, or look, all these years, that is a statement of, of disdain, of disrespect. He's not saying, Oh, look, Dad, but I've been with you. That, that statement is a statement of anger, of disrespect. Look, Dad, I've served you all this time and I've got nothing. It's the same as when the younger son said, Father, give me what's mine. He is a man who is driven by duty and not delight. Why is he so angry? Because he believes he deserves better. Why? Because he's done all the right things. I stayed. I do all the work in the field. I do the right things. I work hard. I deserve your best because I've done the work. Yes, he's obeyed, but he hasn't delighted in the Father. He doesn't love the Father. He's just there for what he will get out of it. He is the empty religion of the Pharisees. Well, he's the empty religion of anyone. Of anyone who thinks by doing the right things or saying the right things or going to church or, or being in this religion or having a nice morality can, can make their way to God. He is the epitome of that. An empty attempt to gain credit with God. It's still a self-centered pursuit. And just like the younger son, he was discontent. He believes he deserved better just as we believe we deserve better from God. He's the one who stayed. Why doesn't he get a party? Look how he, he says of, of himself. So verse 29, so he answered and said, Lo, said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Your religion believes we deserve blessing because we've earned it. I've earned what you should give me. God's forgiveness comes with a change of heart, repentance and faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In fact, not only does he believe he deserves better, he flips the tables and he blames the Father. It's your fault that I'm angry because you didn't do for me what I deserved. This is how we see God too often before we come to know him as Savior. God, you owe me. And because you didn't do right by me, I'm angry at you. So this has left the son divided from his father. He says to his father, you never even gave me a goat. Why does he want a goat? Is it a goat so he can celebrate with his father, so he can enjoy his family, so he can know the goodness of what the family has done? No, his statement is no different than the other son. I want a goat so I can make merry with my friends. What did the younger son want? I want to get out of here so that I can have my own friends separate from you. The older son is no different. His heart is for himself, just as our heart is for ourselves. And in the end here, it says in verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. Would not go in. He is too proud, too angry, too self-righteous. 
So instead of enjoying the Father, he chose to remain distant. Now, as we've gone through these, did you notice some similarities between the two sons? Did you see how similar they were? They're identical. In every aspect except one, they are the same. Both of them were discontent with the goodness they had from their father as we are, religious or not, are discontent with God's goodness. Both disrespectful and both distant. The difference is the younger son recognized his state, sought the forgiveness of his God, sought the forgiveness of his father and went back to make it right and found forgiveness. The older son, the one who believes they've done right, who believes they've done all the right things and has earned their way to find God's respect, refuses. You'll notice that when the son, the older son, heard about the party, the father left the party with his son to go plead with the other to come in. The father loves both. But one would find forgiveness in that love and one would reject it. The younger son finds the joy of redemption. The other son, refusing the loving plea of the father, remains divided. Our message today is a simple one. It doesn't matter who you are or how close or how far you think you are from God by what you do or where you're at. We all have the very same need. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When we come to God to genuinely ask forgiveness, he will give it. God is not asking for us to earn it. He is not expecting us to earn it. He says, if you come and you ask me for the forgiveness, I will give it to you. So today, if you're lost, if you don't genuinely know the Father, come home today. If you are a child of God, if you've come in from the cold and found your receptance back in his house as a son, as a child, rejoice. Rejoice with him. Because his forgiveness is full and complete and your life is as if nothing before that ever happened. You are completely in his love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to listen for a moment to one of your most beautiful stories which illustrates to us one of the grandest truths of all times. I pray, dear God, that my words this morning have not impeded that, but that we have been able to, be, to see the beauty and the truth of what you have for us in your scriptures. And that as the need may be, as we hear you call salvation, Lord, that we would respond to that, come back in repentance, or, dear God, rejoice in our salvation and share that news with those around us.
praise and thank you for these things in Jesus' name.